Welcome to the Insider at Heritage Museums and Gardens, where every other week we chat with guests and museum staff about all the exciting things that are happening in season here at the museum. This year, the museum is celebrating its 50th anniversary, so please plan to join us. My name is Judith Getz, and I'm happy to be your host today. In this episode, we're speaking with Amanda Wastrom, our assistant curator. Today, we're talking about human nature, our outdoor exhibit this year. Uh, wonderful to have you here, Amanda. Hi. And so we are outside, yes. <laughs> in case you hear a little bit of the wind. Um, but we are here to talk about something that's very special, and uh, special in my eyes because it's something that captivates people's imagination in ways that is kind of different than an indoor exhibit. And uh, we're talking about outdoor art, and uh, I was wondering if we could start by just talking about the title. What, 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 uh, human nature, what were we trying to express with that? Well, we were, I guess it's a little bit of a pun. I mean, the phrase human nature, people use that all the time, and it has mm-hmm. a very specific meaning in terms of referring to the way we are as human <laughs> beings. But um, for this, our, I guess to back up, you know, the, the big picture kind of one-line nugget about what this exhibit about, is about is really how humans and nature or humans and our natural environment, how we interact, how, how do we um, overlap, how do we balance each other out, where, where do things cross over, what kinds of, are there areas of conflict, things like that, just how do we, how do we exist as, as beings in the world. And so, you know, if we're talking about how we as humans react with nature, it just seemed like taking those two words and butting them up against each other mm-hmm. was kind of a fun play on the name, on the you know, phrase human nature. Now, when we're talking about human nature, we're talking about pieces that, um, it's actually for those that have been to Heritage in the past and seen our outdoor exhibits, um, they've usually been put in place all at once in, in April and, uh, and then enjoyed throughout the season. This year, you just, we have five of them, and they are being placed at different times. So uh, we started out uh, back in April, with uh, the placement of a beacon. What can you tell us about beacon? So beacon, it was done by the myth makers, uh, Donna Dodson and Andy Morline, who are from Maynard, Massachusetts. And beacon is, to describe it, it's about 15 feet tall. It's constructed out of bamboo in terms of, you almost might want to think of like basket work in a way. It's sort of an open weave. And it is a figure, um, and the top part is an osprey's head, and the bottom is sort of more uh, person-like. I mean, it doesn't have articulated arms and legs, but it is more like a a human figure at the bottom. And this particular piece, uh, Andy and Donna are very much into the idea of storytelling. That's where their name, the Myth Makers, comes from their their interest in telling stories through their work and I, I see a lot of their their work as you know they're kind of symbols they're they're using images from folklore or kind of making their own sort of modern folklore in a way uh, with these particular um, sculptures that they do and that this so the story that they're trying to tell with this particular piece is the story of the osprey and um, Rachel Carson, again, that's sort of like Rachel Carson, the human, mm-hmm. Osprey, the nature, 
And so Rachel Carson, a well-known environmentalist, wrote Silent Spring in the 1960s, a really seminal book on the effects of CBT poisoning on our environment. And Andy and Donna were interested in that sort of complicated situation. For a lot of people, DDT was a huge game changer, but it did not come without its risks and its problems. It was hugely detrimental to the bird populations, and particularly large birds of prey like bald eagles and ospreys. What they ended up discovering was that the DDT would, the higher up on the food chain you were, the more DDT you would sort of accumulate from the other animals that you were eating and it got to a level where it would affect um, the eggs of these birds and their eggs there were the shells were too thin and so they were not able to reproduce and it really was Rachel Carson's book that opened the public's eyes to what DDT the damage DDT was causing mm -hmm. and you can draw a direct line between her book and the eventual banning of um, DDT as in mat wide use and you know fast forward 50 years 55 years or so and today ospreys are thriving as are bald eagles the uh, populations have really rebounded and what's nice is that this whole story has a really local connection in that um, we've seen even from my childhood to now here on Cape Cod the populations of ospreys coming back more and more frequently within, with every year. And Rachel Carson herself was a researcher at Woods Hole and spent a lot of time down there. So um, it's a really nice piece, I think. No, it is exquisite. And it's been shown. Uh, it was up in Boston most recently, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so for those that are enjoying, uh, you know, something that is... Uh, easily photographed with others. Uh, it's a great piece to be photographed with. So instantly in Instagrammable, I guess you could say, uh, but recognizable as well. And as, as you mentioned, there's a big story attached to it as well, one that, uh, one that people should pay a little bit of attention to. Um, we have something that is, uh, one thing I do want to mention is that there is a map located on our website that kind of illustrates where a majority of these pieces are going to be placed or have been placed. Uh, the next one uh, that was in place or put in place in May was entitled Stall. The second piece is titled Stall by an artist, Nancy Winship Milliken. She's based in Charlotte, Vermont. And Nancy's work, she uses somewhat non-traditional sculpture materials in her work, usually uh, natural materials combined with something like steel or some kind of armature. In terms of natural materials, it's often sheep's wool, horse hair, that kinds of thing. And again, she, she is definitely interested in the way that humans and animals interact, whether it's sort of our rural New England farming traditions or, you know, how, how we use animals, how we use animal materials and things like that. So stall, it's constructed, it's about, again, 15 feet tall. It's a large stainless, uh, not stainless steel, large steel frame and uh, almost like a big picture frame or a big big window and hanging from it is a I best described probably as a curtain uh, made of horsehair mm -hmm. and the horsehair is actually taken uh, from it's reclaimed from cello bows so she works with luthiers in New York and, and Philadelphia and so luthiers when they restring bows from 
various musicians. They, they put all the horsehair aside and she takes it and uses it in her work. And I think what's interesting about the piece when it's finished, you know, you think of a cello bow, these, these horsehair tied, you know, strung so tightly that it, they really lose the sense of the animal. Mm-hmm. And she, in a way, you could think she's sort of like freeing the horsehair <laughs> and placing it back and, and it flows again as, as hair does. The, the way that the curtain moves in the wind is, is really beautiful. It sort of ripples and it's one of those pieces you can, you can see it as you're walking from, from a distance and so I'm, my hope is that, you know, your, your curiosity is piqued enough to, to approach it and, and investigate what exactly is going on there. Um, but I think there's something just really poetic about, you know, it ripples in the wind. Wind is something you feel, but you maybe don't see. And that the construction of this piece really makes the wind visible in a way. Well, you've made me look at this piece very differently. <laughs> I've seen it outside my window, and it, uh, it, it's, I just never thought of it that way. And I think it has to do with exactly what you had said, the reclaiming of the freedom for the horsehair. <laughs> That's fascinating. Um, and, of course, uh, that one, uh, both of these pieces that you just mentioned right now and the rest of the pieces as well uh, will be on exhibit until uh, we close in October on the 14th. So we wanted to space them out a little bit to give every artist their sort of moment a little mm-hmm. bit. And these, these pieces are, I think, a little more ambitious and a little larger than what we've done, at least in the recent past. So that's, that helps us, I think, logistically a little, too, that we can give each artist our full attention. And in addition, several of them, not all of them, um, are coming back the following day to do an art-making workshop. And that the hope with that is that the artists, most of these artists, in fact, almost all of them, I think, are also teachers or have taught extensively in their past. So that, you know, this will give people a chance to really meet with the artists, try their hand at using the same kinds of materials that these artists use and just play. I mean, so much of art in its early phases is just messing around with materials. And, and so I think that's our hope with the workshop is that um, visitors have a chance to you know, mess around with yeah, the artists. Yeah, absolutely, too. because the materials are all very different, including the next one that we're going to talk about, which also was installed in May, which is um, Gins Grinberg's. Is that correct? Did yes. I have that right? All yes. right. So tell me a little bit about that piece. So his piece is titled Nanospheres, and Gintz works mainly in steel and metal, and that was another goal of the exhibit was through the selection of these artists try to present a really wide range of working methods and techniques and materials. And so his pieces are spherical. There's going to be a grouping of them, different shapes and sizes, and different patterns. So he usually takes some sort of repeated pattern and creates the sphere out of it. So they're really geometric. They're pretty kind of mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of for those, <laughs> those human brains that like symmetry, there's something really appealing about them from that standpoint. To me, they, they resemble giant marbles a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Gintz is really interested in, um, I would say, both the micro parts of our world and the macro parts of our natural world. So he loves looking at pictures of faraway galaxies. Um, He's very interested in the the black hole, the photographs of the black hole that were discovered recently. And um, 
but also, you know, microscopic images of cells and cellular organizations and things like that. And just so, you know, kind of inspired by the way that nature organizes itself. And what is the title of this piece? Nanospheres. Okay. So, again, with the theme that you mm-hmm. had mentioned, uh, making tiny into big, I guess yeah. you could say in yeah. a sense. Yep. All right. So, but. next on the list is actually uh, Michelle Lugie. And uh, tell me a little bit about her piece. So, her piece is titled Chrysalis. Mm-hmm. Um, Michelle is from Dedham, uh, excuse me, not Dedham, Cambridge, Massachusetts. A lot of Massachusetts artists this year, which is really nice. And Michelle, again, a slightly non-traditional material. For her sculpture, she uses, they're almost entirely constructed out of single-use plastic trash bags. Uh, excuse me, not trash bags, shopping bags. So the kinds of bags that people use at the grocery store or things like that. Um, and what she does with the plastic is she cuts it into really long strips, and then she crochets with it. And so I can't even imagine. You've said this too many times that I have not been able to picture this in my mind. Yeah. But uh, it's a fabulous. I've seen pictures of the end result, so it is definitely you know something that is done very well. Yeah. So she, you know, once she crochets her forms, she uses you know harder materials as an armature, and um, the you know puts the forms over the top and you know I think it's one of those pieces that you can you can see oh that's cool in photographs but when you really get up close to them you can see the the knot work and the stitching mm-hmm. and um, you know she uses the different colors of the plastic to her advantage as well and you know for her again she's taking this this material that is pretty problematic but also useful you know plastic is a Another example similar to DDT of something that was a complete life changer in so many ways. You think of the ways that plastic is used in medical procedures and for sanitation and things like that. It it has really transformed our world, but it is not without its problems and its downsides. And and one of those problems being the accumulation of plastic in our environment. And that's something, again, with a really local connection here on Cape Cod, I think most towns at this point have banned the use of single-use trash bags uh, and cons- with concerns about litter and, and polluting the ocean and things like that. Um, so I think Michelle's, she she has stated in some of her, you know, artist statements and things like that, that, that she, you know, nature is her muse again. You know, she finds the forms of nature, such as the chrysalis, really beautiful and inspiring. And so, you know, to take this really sort of quintessentially human material and make something directly referencing nature out of it. I think, again, she's, she's playing with the, the balance of humans and nature. How do we work together? Um, Almost like a rebirth, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, how do we respond to each other? And how do we, how do we live together? Too? Yes, absolutely. And our last, um, uh, shall we say, outdoor exhibit um, selector or um, piece is a piece by Timothy Ellis Cole. Yes, so his piece is titled Sea Flea, an Americana Art Adventure. It's a lengthy title. Um, and his piece is going to be located down by John Pond. So all of the other pieces will be on the main area so everyone can see it. With We, we think that's important, you know, whether mm-hmm. you're walking on the, on, you know, exploring the entire campus or you're just going down the main road that you can still see these pieces unfortunately for tim's it just it needed to be by the pond yes (laughs) it it made sense 
So his piece, what he is doing is taking, and um, Tim lives in New Bedford, so he's also a local artist. He took a vintage hydroplane, which is a sort of home-built boat from the kind of mid-20th century. And the history of these boats is really fascinating. I'm, I'm not going to remember the designer's name, but the boat designer po published these plans in a magazine that was sort of the precursor to Popular Mechanics magazine back in the early, you know, like 1930s, 1940s. Um, it was sort of a high-performance speedboat, but something that people could build at home. Mm -hmm. Sort of the precursor to the jet ski, I guess you would say. And these boats were built here on Cape Cod and were actually raced up and down Cape Cod Canal. This particular boat was, I believe it was Tim's father-in-law's, something like that. So he is kind of repurposing it. He's painting it and finishing it up, fixing it up. And it's going to be installed in front of Champ Pond uh, in a way that visitors can climb into it. And he's going to stage. So Tim's interests lie in folk art and illustration and graffiti. He, he paints a lot and, and does hand lettering and things like that. So in addition to kind of transforming the hydroplane boat, he's also including a sort of greetings from Cape Cod vintage style hand lettered sign so that people can take their own, again, sort of Instagrammable shot of them on Cape Cod in their little vintage hydroplane. So I think that piece is going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Sort of, you know, responding to um, folk art traditions, but making, again, kind of a modern folk art piece, I think. And very Cape Cod-y. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is terrific. So we're talking about five different pieces. If you want to learn more about where they're located or more about the artists themselves, we encourage you to go to our website, which is heritagemuseums.org. Um, all of these pieces will be up by when? Um, Tim's is the last, and his is going up in August. So there's three going up in May, one in July, and then one in August. Okay. And, again, they will be in place uh, until we close, which is October 14th, Monday, October 14th, which is Columbus Day weekend. Terrific. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Insider at Heritage Museums and Gardens. We've been talking to Amanda Wastrom, our assistant curator, about our outdoor exhibit, Human Nature. Today's interview has been brought to you by our Bella Insurance Foundation and Cape Cod 5, our 2019 season sponsors, and the Arts Foundation of Cape Cod. You can hear more interviews like this one by finding us on iTunes. And of course, more information about Heritage Museums and Gardens and upcoming programming can be all be found on our website at heritagemuseums.org. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.